Hello everyone and welcome to another amazing episode of The Joy of Being for busy working mums and women in business and beyond who are seeking to unplug from their worries and overwhelm to light up with insight and joy. I, your host, mum and effortless lifestyle coach Marina Pearson, talk to transformational professionals, business owners and creatives about what it really takes to have a business and life you can truly enjoy. If you enjoyed the show or had any questions, why not connect with me on Instagram at Marina Pearson? Look out for the show's meme and make a comment there, or just click on my story and ask me a question. Alternatively, you can find me on the Joy of Being Facebook group. And if you would like a more personalized touch to live a stress-free life, then why not find out more about the Joy of Being retreat, an intimate four-day profound experience at a luxury venue in Javier, Spain, where you get to experience your inner calm and peace of mind by slowing down and making space. To find out more, email me at marina marinapearson.com with Joy of Being Retreat in the title. And on this week's episode, I get to interview the infamous Michael Neal. Wow, he is an internationally renowned transformative coach and the best-selling author of six books, including Creating the Impossible, The Inside Out Revolution and The Space Within. Michael is often described as the coach's coach and commands extraordinary respect within his field for unleashing the human potential with intelligence, humor, and heart. He has spent nearly 30 years working as a coach, advisor, friend, mentor, and creator spark plug to CEOs, celebrities, royalty, and people who want to get more out of themselves, their businesses, and their lives. His books have been translated into 22 languages, and his public talks, retreats, seminars, and online programs have touched and transformed lives at the United Nations and over 60 countries on six continents around the world. His TEDx talk, Why Aren't We Awesomer, has been viewed by over 200,000 people. And Michael's weekly radio show, Living From The Inside Out, has been a listener favorite on Hay House Radio for over a decade. His weekly blog and podcast, Caffeine For The Soul, is now in its 18th year and going strong. Well, aside from all of those accolades, Michael is just a really cool and fun guy. I remember... Uh, meeting him for the first time about five years ago now when I was first introduced to what I've now come to see as the inside out nature of life and I remember sitting there and just being totally mesmerized by this guy and never having heard of him just always wanted more and every time I've spoken to Michael I've just always been wanting to like spend more time with him Um, and it was the same with this interview that we did where we talked about race where we talked about how creating the impossible is actually possible more than we actually think and what I what I came out of this podcast with was that sense of it's actually more possible for me to create the impossible than I ever thought. So if you've got any crazy ass ideas about things that you want to create and just think, oh no, I can't do that. Or there's a dream you have, you know, if it's as crazy as getting married to a superstar or meeting, you know, one of your uh, favorite people on the planet that you've never met before, then this is going to be a great episode for you. Uh, Enjoy. So welcome, Michael Neal. I am super excited to have you on the show today, as I am with all my guests. But I am a big fan of yours, and I'm very excited to have you on the show. So welcome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 
and on the outset, I, I kind of wanted to interview you because I wanted to talk about your book, Creating the Impossible. You know, creativity is such a huge part of, of who we are and how our life just seems to unfold. But more, if you're an entrepreneur and if you're, you're a business owner, it is such a valuable, valuable resource, I think, this book. So I'd love to start with what had you actually decide to write this book? Why this book in particular? I actually created the first Creating the Impossible program back in 2009. And it, it came out of the number one thing that I would hear my clients uh, and, and sometimes non-clients who just were talking about their lives. They, I, I'd watch them take themselves out of the game of creating what they wanted before they started. So they would, they, they would kind of talk wistfully about uh, a career change and then have all the very good reasons why they couldn't do it and it was impossible. Or they'd talk about some grandiose ambition that you could see their eyes light up and then you could see their eyes deaden as they explained why they weren't the kind of person who could ever do something so impossible. And, and eventually I just thought, well, if the problem is that people don't think it's possible, let's deliberately create a program where we create something that we know is impossible going in so that we can just take that off the table. You're right. It's not possible. I don't even need to hear the reasons. I believe you. Let's create it anyways, or at least see what gets created when we start walking in that direction. It was just such a fun program <laughs> because everybody's like, really? You can do that? And, and so after seven years... Yeah, actually, I think I, I, I originally decided to do it as a book after six years. But I, I just thought, okay, I've now done this enough times. I have enough stories. I have enough examples. I have enough experience with it that I can run it with an imaginary participant, with a reader. Because that's the, that's the problem is in real time, it's very easy for me to coach people along. In a book, I wasn't sure at first I'd be able to do it. But then, as I say, after, after kind of six, seven years, I, I, the same kinds of things come up again and again and again. And so I was pretty sure I could do it in a book. So could you share some of those examples, like an example that comes to mind about just an example of one of the clients that you've had that has actually done that? Well, there, there's the sort of very mundane, I say mundane, I mean, it wasn't mundane to them at all. But one of the examples I share in the book is is a client who, who said, well, I mean, you know, if it didn't have to be possible, I'd just go sleep with a movie star. And the next day actually did sleep with a movie star, which is a story in of itself. But the the one that I think has to be my my current favorite just happened in this last year. Um, so we run it as a live program every year as well. And and there was there was a woman and she she didn't even share her project because she was embarrassed about it. And it, well, not embarrassed, but I, th I think she didn't want to jinx it or, or whatever it was. But she decided that there's a homeless man in Central Park. His name is Armando. And he, he walks around with a cart that has pictures of uh, the power of now and a new earth, the Eckhart Tolle books on the side of the cart. And he sits on his park bench in the middle of Central Park and sort of dispenses life advice because he was so his life was turned around by reading he he was a he was a heavy duty addict and a petty criminal and he gave it all up and and sort of had a spiritual awakening when reading the power of now and she got it in her head she's not in publishing she doesn't know anybody she wanted to get Eckhart Tolle to come to Central Park in New York and meet this guy that was her impossible project 
And we didn't know anything about it until one week before the program was over when she announced that it had, it had happened. And through a series of the kind of completely random seeming interactions and, and coincidences, but also through persistence and just what the hell, let's try it. This she had managed to get through Dakar Tolle. That took her most of the 13 weeks that we run the program in a, in, in a sort of a 13 week program. <laughs> And managed to arrange this. And even down to on the day where it was supposed to happen, it was pouring rain. And so she assumed that he would cancel. And he didn't. And they walked in the in the pouring rain in New York City about 15 minutes through the park to the bench where this guy, because basically, long story short, she sent us photographs of Eckhart Tolle and Armando hugging. They spoke for half an hour. And we got a chance. I was in New York City a couple of months later, and I went out and I spent an hour with Armando. And he was so profoundly moved by it. And he was actually such an incredibly profoundly moving character that the the whole thing was magical. And and I think while it, while there are there are great marketing stories like you know somebody who who got married through the program and people who lost weight through the program and people who got book books published through the program. Things like that are the ones that light me up, where it's almost random, but beautiful. And that that was just the most randomly beautiful one that, that happened this year. Wow. I've just got goosebumps and I'm about, I've got tears in my eyes just listening to that story. That's such a beautiful story about love. Like That's really what I heard in what you were saying. It was just all of it. Like He was profoundly moved. She wanted to make a difference. Eckhart Tolle did show up even though it was raining. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I know. <laughs> That's enough just to make a movie out of it, actually. <laughs> it really was extraordinary. I mean, I, I actually recorded, um, with his permission, the conversation I had with Armando, and I'm hoping we can get the sound quality elevated to the point where we can we can use some of it in a podcast at some point. Because, I mean, it was like I imagined sitting with Eckhart Tolle would be. I mean, he was lit from within and and just a beautiful beautiful man in his own right and i could kind of see i mean he was he was like a disney princess and what i mean by that is you know how in in the disney movies like all the birds land in their hand and talk to them and and while we were speaking in the middle of this just random bit of central park the squirrels were coming up and he knew them all and they knew him and he would be getting different kinds of nuts for the different animals. And at one point he started chewing up uh, a, a nut, this bird landed. And just as we were talking about something else, and when he could see that I was staring at him because he was chewing up this nut and putting this chewed up nut on the ground for the bird who was grabbing it and flying off. He said, oh, that's a daddy. I forget whether it was a robin or a blue jay. And and it's got three babies and it, it can't feed them. They can't eat the whole nuts. But if I chew them up, it can, it can feed them to the babies. And I'm just going, what is happening? Wow. <laughs> At one point, I offered to trade offices with him. And he said, no, I'm good. <laughs> so what have been some of the miracles that you've experienced in your life, Michael? Well, I have a sort of a, a different take on miracle than, than, than I think sometimes people hear the word and think of it in terms of, of stories like Armando's. For me, it's kind of a miracle that I'm here. Um, it's a miracle that I'm happy. 
like I think I would have been voted least likely to be happy in my high school yearbook. It, it's a miracle that I'm, you know, 30 years into a beautiful relationship with a beautiful woman, I, that I have kids, that I have a puppy. As I'm hearing the answer come out of my mouth, it sounds like, oh, he's one of those guys. <laughs> but I guess I am. I, I really had such low expectations <laughs> that most of what's happened in my life feels like a miracle. And I kind of don't mind that. I think most of what happens, including our presence here, is by grace. And so for me, the whole thing's kind of a, a great, big, wonderful miracle. And I, I'm not saying that, you know, I walk around like a Disney princess going, oh, and, you know, when this person cuts me off in traffic, that's a miracle too. No, I can get <laughs> as curmudgeonly and get off my lawn and, you know, as, as, as the next person. But, but honestly, for me, the simple fact that I get to be happy, I get to be in love, I get to have beautiful kids, I get to have a wonderful life is more than enough miracle for me. So for those that are listening and are finding life difficult, what changed for you, Michael? Because you know, you started off saying, well, you were the least likely to have been the most happy if, in your year school book. But now it seems that that's changed. And for those that have never listened to you or heard of you, I'd really, I'm curious about that. What changed for you? Well, what changed is I learned that happiness isn't a creation. And I think maybe that's why Creating the Impossible became such a signature program for us is because we create things in the world. Our inner world, there's a pre-existing happiness. There's a pre-existing intelligence. There's a pre-existing order and ecology in that world that already works perfectly. And what happened to me was I saw it and, and I saw it in a, in a heartbeat and I saw it beyond a shadow of a doubt. I was listening to, and I, I don't know if he comes up on your podcast regularly, but I was listening to, uh, a recording of a video of a guy named Sid Banks, who was a Scottish welder who I had never heard of, but he was, he had an enlightenment experience again, like Eckhart Tolle and Krishnamurti and various people. And Armando. And Armando. Absolutely. And, he said, every human being is sitting in the middle of mental health. They just don't know it. And I was drinking a beer at the time and I spit the beer up and burst out laughing because for whatever reason, as somebody who'd been, you know, uh, depressive for years, I mean, you know, suicidally depressive for the first part of my life and just always battling it and usually winning, but, but up against that as my default. To suddenly realize that the default is health, the default is well-being. Babies don't need therapy. We're born happy and well. And in a heartbeat, it changed. And it's a, it's a weird thing because I was so sure I knew how it worked before that. I was so sure. Well, yeah, you can overcome your depressive nature. You can overcome your circumstances. You can overcome all of this, which was sort of true, but continually exhausting. And it's to like be a battle, able, you have to win, right? A, a, a daily battle. You know, they even Stephen Covey used to talk about the daily private victory. Um, and I took that to heart and I, I prepped my battle and I was a warrior. But to realize, oh, wait, it's always been there. It, it, it was like I tell the story in one of my books about a, a guy who came to see me and 
and he wanted to be happy and he was telling his story and he had a very difficult set of circumstances. I think he'd lost his wife shortly before and was left with small children. And, and he said, you know, don't I deserve to be happy? And I burst out laughing and I was so apologetic because it was horrific in the face of what he was saying. But what I saw in that moment, and this was after my little beer epiphany, I was looking at his nose <laughs> and I said, it's, it's, I'm really sorry, but it's like, you're telling me, don't I deserve to have a nose with everything I've been through in my life? Surely even I could have a nose. <laughs> and I'm looking at your nose and, and I get that you don't see that that's all you're looking for, but it's right there. And yeah, it's hard to see the nose on your face. We're kind of not, it's an invisible to us, but it's always there. And that, that's what happened is I just saw it. And in seeing it, I stopped chasing it. And, and in the kind of quiet of no longer chasing it, it was right there waiting for me. It was like a butterfly landing on my shoulder when I stopped trying to get it to land on my shoulder. What I really hear in that is that there is just so much hope for mankind and, and, and our human experience in terms of how we've understood it to how it actually really works. I feel that in my, my new, new book, which will come out in oh, November. Oh, they haven't published yet. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it, 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 it's out in November. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a rewrite of a book I wrote 10 years ago called Supercoach. And, and it's a major rewrite. I mean, it's at least 50%, probably more than 50% different from the original because I've seen a lot in the last decade about this. That was the first book I wrote when I first had my epiphany. And one of the chapters, the kind of 10th session, it's written like 10 coaching sessions. And the 10th session is the power of hope because what I've seen, did you ever read the Lord of the Rings books? Yes, I did. So I loved the books because in the books, white magic, what the white wizard, what Gandalf and those guys do is pure expression of hope. And what the black magicians, what the black wizards do is they take away hope. And so I, I think not only is seeing the possibility of a complete awakening to your own joy, uh, it, 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 it's totally possible, but living with hope is really good. <laughs> it does something for you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I um, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine because his son has been going in and out of depression and has been really struggling with it for quite a while. And it took me back to when I was struggling with it too. And you know, I found myself saying to him, you know, the only thing that I really wanted at that moment was to know that there was actually a way out, or at least it gave me hope to think that somehow there was a way in which I didn't have to live with that sort of depressing thinking anymore. And that's all we're looking for is a little bit of hope when we're in that dark place, right? Is just to know that there is a possibility that it could be different. Just a glimpse of it even. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what was behind the It Gets Better movement a few years ago. Now, again, that was, you know, specifically bullying and, and sexuality, but it was the same, the, the message, it gets better. You know, I think for some people that hasn't been true. And so they, they, they kind of cling to, I don't know what they cling to. Uh, I, I sort of got to the point where I thought, well, okay, I can improve my circumstances and being depressed in nicer circumstances is better than it was being depressed in not so nice circumstances. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, look, I, I told you I set the bar low, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but actually the opposite. Now I, I, I've seen to be true that actually the fact that 
we do have moments. I mean, even in my the worst of my depression, I had moments of pure joy, but I dismissed them as anomalies. I dismissed them as, you know, I don't even know what my story was, but it was like they didn't count. And what I've come to see is actually it's all that counts. I remember I used to think that when I looked back on my life at the end of my life, and this is when I was a teenager, I was a bleak little kid. Um, but you know, when I look back at the end of it, you know, I would, I would measure my life according to, did I have more happy days or more sad days? And sad was winning. And then one day I was having a moment of pure joy. And it occurred to me that if I had died in that moment, I would have thought my life had been the most beautiful thing. And then I thought, oh crap. So how do I make sure I'm in a, in a high state of mind when I die? <laughs> and that was wow. a nightmare. I know. I know. I'm telling you. I'm, I'm thinking about it now and going, geez, kid. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I also remember one day waking up and thinking about it and, and a brand new thought coming to me. And the thought was, why do I have to look back and evaluate my life? Why can't I just live it? And I tell you, that one did me a world of good. Yeah, I can really see how that would do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to go back to a point that you spoke of, and it was just this word you used, which was grace. I don't know. I felt like there was something in that, and I wanted to kind of come back to that and just to sort of explore what is it? Like, what is it? Um, where does it come from? Is it viable to all of us, you know, for some of us sitting here going, yeah, yeah, Michael, you got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the chosen one. Yeah, the, you're the chosen one, right? Yeah, of course, you're super successful. <laughs> oh, if only you knew how funny that was. Um, <laughs> no, look, grace to me is unearned love. It's unearned bounty. It's what every parent, I, I, I think, experiences at least in a, in a few moments, uh, uh, when their child looks at them and, and you just go, nope, did not earn this amount of love. You know, sometimes for some people, it's a puppy. I've got a puppy who's playing by my feet. I hope the background noise isn't too bad, but I was wondering what that noise was. Yeah. Well, so, and, and, and there's just no point. If I take the toy away, it's only going to get worse. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, there, there are just, moments for for everyone and and it really is for everyone where in the same way as there are moments where you you go how could it be this bad where you go how how did it get this good how did i get to have this in my life and sometimes it's just a feeling not a circumstance sometimes it is a you know a a person or a you know a creature and for me you know those moments of grace the fact that they're unearned is why we're always looking to see well where did they come from and, and, you know, the easy answer is, oh, well, it came from God or, oh, it came from, it wasn't really grace. You did earn it in because of you, you put in the energy or you put in the hours or you, and it's almost like people magic it up or they magic it down. They make it completely magic so that it's almost not worth thinking about it. Or they, they try and explain it away so that it's not worth thinking about. I rely on grace, not not entirely. I, I'm, I'm kind of a fan. There's a Ken Wilber book called Grace and Grit. Uh, the book is a very heavy book. It's diaries of his wife as she was dying of cancer. But the title always stuck with me, that that's what it takes to get through life. It does take grit. It does take determination. It does take a willingness to keep showing up. But so much of what we have is grace. And, and for me, it's one of those things that once you start to notice it, 
you start to notice it more. It's not that you earn it by noticing it. You just get to experience it more and notice it more when you notice it. Hmm. And I don't know where it comes from. Like for me, it's part of the fabric of the universe. It's part of some kind of divine physics of how things work here. And I am very grateful for it. And as I say, to a certain extent, and incredibly impossible, I, I, I don't talk about it extensively as grace, but I talk about how the experience of things happening in your favor that you could not possibly have planned for or predicted is a hundred percent reliable. It's just that it's 98% unpredictable how and when it shows up along the course of anything that you're up to. Can you say that again? Because I, what you just said was so beautiful that I want to hear it again, <laughs> if you can. <laughs> so here's, here's the, the, the rule of thumb that, that, that I share with people in Creating the Impossible. Is as, you, as you begin moving in the direction of your dreams, as you begin just moving forward in your life, the and and the way I, I I've actually I'll I'll, re, I'll literally read as I wrote it the emergence of fresh new thinking and unexpected synchronicities in other words luck in other words grace is a hundred percent reliable and ninety eight percent unpredictable nobody's gotten anywhere in their lives without grace you and I wouldn't be speaking without grace you and I wouldn't be able to speak without grace but neither of us had a vision board. Well, I'm not, I might, maybe you had a vision board with me on it, but I mean, you know, we certainly didn't have a vision board about speaking, being able to speak, right? You know, we, 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 it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I, I sometimes, um, <laughs> embarrassing revelation number 17. I, I sometimes <laughs> will add something to my to do list after I've done it so I can cross it off. I do See, that I too. Can, yeah. All right. Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're amongst friends here then. So, but. See, I think sometimes people add things to their vision board after they've happened so they can feel like they created it. And I think that's a shame because yes, there are things that we set about creating intentionally in life, but so much of what gets created is, is unintended. It's, it's grace. And that for me, you know, I can go to bed at night because, because grace is going to keep the world turning. It doesn't need me to stay awake and stay on it. Yeah, you know, what came to mind when you were speaking was how I um, came across the, the villa I live in. And, you know, I'd, I'd totally forgotten about five years ago that I'd written on a piece of paper that I wanted to live in a villa um, where, my, you know, friends could come and stay and that it would have a view of the mountains. And um, I'm sitting there at my desk, I don't know, maybe about five months ago, and I'm looking out onto the mountains and I'm like, huh. I was like, you know, it's such a beautiful view. And then I was doing a little bit of tidying on that day and I found the little bottle that I put the the wish in. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> <It's> totally forgotten. <laughs> totally forgotten that I wanted this in my life. And it's and it's here. And it was just funny, the whole kind of taking the steps to to have this this filler and now what it now what it actually gives other people because I'm actually renting the two rooms downstairs out and it's for them to come and just be and it's such a tranquil and still place that they always leave refreshed and they always leave feeling peaceful which is actually how I've I've decided to call that the the villa but it's so interesting to me how that never was a thing in my head it's just unfolded that way yeah. And, and unfolding is probably one of the words I use more than any other to explain how, how life works. 
it really does seem to me like a divine unfolding. My, my first book, um, which was called You Can Have What You Want, was actually called Soul Path when I submitted it to the publishers and they said that was too spiritual sounding. So they renamed it. But, but it came from all working with clients over 20 years and seeing that all the really cool things that they had done unfolded as if by design. Like there was no way that they could have done it through will. There was so much grace. There was so much synchronicity. There was so much luck. There was so much whatever you would call it that it was almost like their soul was laying the path out for them step by step as they walked. And, and that's what I see is that when we relax into it, when we stop pushing so hard, when we get really clean and clear about what we want without the thought that we have to make it happen, it is amazing how much of what we want un- unfolds. And no, not all of it. And no, not necessarily to our schedule. But boy, a remarkable amount of the time. I, I actually have a new analogy for it. I, I was in Switzerland, um, I think probably a couple of years ago now, but, and I, I landed in the airport late at night and it was like the airport was shut down. The lights were off in parts of the airport. The, the escalators weren't running. And I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't know Switzerland was having a financial crisis. But as I started walking <laughs> out of the airport, I noticed whatever room I walked into, the lights came on. And I stepped very tentatively on this broken escalator and it wasn't broken. It yeah. started moving as soon yeah. as I stepped yeah. on it. And I realized that that's really similar to how the universe seems to work, right? We can't see what's going to come to our aid because it's waiting for us to get to that point. It's a real time responsive intelligence that we have in us that, that works with us as, as we set about creating in our lives. And so, no, you can't predict it. You can, I have, a, I have, a, I have a, a friend who, who uses the phrase, unpredict your journey. And, and I think that's beautiful because, because we get in trouble when we try to predict it because we're terrible at predicting the future. We're just horrible at it. Like I work at Hay House with some of the top psychics in the world, and they wouldn't make some of the predictions most people make. Oh, well, yeah, this is going to work. Or, oh, no, this would never work. And it's like, how on earth can you know when you don't even know what you're going to be thinking five minutes from now, let alone what's going to come to mind or what's going to occur to you five days, five months, five years from now, as you continue to move forward, as life continues to unfold. For me, talk about hopeful. That's that's hope. My inability to predict the future is where a lot of my hope comes from. Because honestly, if I was right about the future, I would have been dead decades ago. <laughs> I love that because often we're so scared of, of not knowing. Isn't that funny? We are. I mean, and, and yet not knowing is such a comfort if you know that at some point with most things you do know, right? Like I, there's another chapter in the, in, in the new uh, edition of Supercoach that it is, it, it talks about decisions. And, and it, it basically, what I've seen about decisions is there's really no such thing as a decision. You either know what to do or you don't. And when you don't know what to do, but you think that you should, you make a decision. But why do that? <laughs> like, in other words, there's very few places in life where we really have to go forward when we don't at some level already know what to do. And, and so not knowing is the gateway to new. It's the gateway to, to, to fresh ideas. 
And especially if somebody's not enjoying their life, if they're not happy with their circumstances, not knowing is the greatest gift, how it's going to change. Because that's, that's the room for something new to come along. If you were stuck with what you thought about in your head all day long, most of us would be pretty stuck. Yeah. What, what came to mind when you were, when you were just saying that was the experience that I've had about creating systems and processes around this podcast, nothing that I'd ever done before, um, but something that I knew that I wanted to do so that I could just focus on recording and then <clears throat> creating some of the content, you know, when we promote the episodes. That's really what I wanted to focus on. But I had no idea about how to go about creating any systems or processes. I just kind of thought, well, if I need to give this job to someone else, then they just need to know the steps that we need to take. So I'll just do that then. And as a result, it's been really interesting because I'll start with a blank piece of paper and then it just sort of comes to me as I do it. And it, it was such a surprise because the belief I had was that I'm no good at this sort of systems and process crap. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, you know, two or th- well, three months later, I'm just doing the podcast interviewing and, and, and um, writing a little bit of content. The rest of it's been taken care of. So, yeah, I, yeah it, to me, it, it, is, it is magical because you just don't know. And, and it's just give it a go and see what happens. Right. You know, I, I did a, a workshop with a, a friend of mine earlier this year. We called it Living Beyond the Known. And it was because we both have the experience and, and we both worked with, I mean, thousands at this point of people. So we have the experience and know that it's not just us. That, that in those moments where you go beyond what you think you know, you know, oh, well, I know how it is. I know how it's going to be. I know this. That space beyond the known is the space where miracles happen. It is the space where grace can come in and, and pick up the, pick up the load and, and carry it to the next place. You know, there's a metaphor I use in creating the impossible of the invisible giant. I say, you know, imagine you're walking along a, a mountain path and the way is blocked by a giant boulder and you're walking with an invisible giant, by the way, you know, just. Like you as you do and and you you look at this boulder and there's literally no way i mean it's a cliff face on one side and solid solid mountain on the other and and so you you find a really long stick and you use it as a lever and you create just enough space around the boulder that you can squeeze through and it's painful and it takes days but you know you have an amazing sense of accomplishment when you come to the other side i did it i triumphed over my circumstances i won but Imagine the same scenario and you just let the giant move the boulder. Now, you don't get the sense of accomplishment. You don't get the sense of triumph, but you also don't get the exhaustion and all the time spent trying to prove that you can do it. You, you just get to continue on your journey. And that invisible giant of, of, of grace, of responsive in the moment intelligence, of the lights coming on in the Swiss airport as you need them to, that's what we've all got. As we go about our journeys, as we set about creating whatever it is we want to create in our lives. And it's just, we're used to trying to do it ourselves. We're conditioned. We're trained to do it ourselves. We're rewarded for doing it ourselves. And like I say, you need grace and grit 
I'm not suggesting that you don't need to do the work and put in the hours with most things of any scope you do, but you do have an invisible giant who'll take care of the big stuff for you in ways that you couldn't imagine and you couldn't predict. So do we get in the way of letting the giant help us? Oh my God, always. <laughs> like on a daily basis. I mean, I, perhaps hourly. You know, I mean, you know, I, you know, I've even had things happen in my life where, you know, something works out so much better than I could have expected. And, and I actually have heard myself in my head go, thanks, God, I'll take it from here. Right. And, <laughs> you know, and it's just, it makes me laugh. But, but it's so conditioned in most of us, this idea that if it's to be, it's up to me, that we're continually struggling to make things happen that aren't ours to make happen. And sometimes to the point where when there is something that we could do, we don't do it. We don't do it. Like I, I remember years ago, so I've been doing a, a call-in radio show uh, since, God, for 12 years, something, 13 years now. And, and I remember one of my favorite calls to this day was a woman who phoned in and, and her, her big dream was she wanted to be a professional bowler. It's a, it's a much bigger thing in America than in, in, in the UK, but it's, you know, it's a sport. And, and she said, I'm really good. I'm the best one in my local. And, you know, when there's a qualifying tournament, you know, coming to town next month. And, um, you know, I just, I want your advice on how do I let go and, and let God and let the universe and let grace and, you know, and, and, and I said to her, well, have you signed up for the tournament? <laughs> and she was, it had not even occurred to her that that might be a step. <laughs> and, and it, it's like, and I use the analogy. I mean, I don't know if you pulled, but you know, you can't let go until you're swinging the ball towards the pins. Then you have to let go. Like then if you don't let go, the ball can't do its job. The ball can't roll down. So we get in the way of grace by either not picking up the ball and going to the bowling alley in the first place or by not letting it go when it's time to let it go and let it do its thing. So I'm curious, like you've given a really great example as, as in the first part, the second part of letting go, like had, is there a concrete example you can give? Cause I love the metaphor. I'm just thinking, how would that work in real time? Well, I watched an interesting, I mean, this is an example of, of it not working. But it, it, it's the one that came to mind immediately because I just saw it yesterday. It's a beautiful story, and hopefully it's a story that's not over yet, but of a, a little girl in Nepal whose parents were groundskeepers at the Royal Nepalese Golf Course, which is a, a you know, it's a tour quality golf course. Mm-hmm. And so because they were so poor, they were allowed to live in the back of a storage shed behind the third green on the golf course. So 200 square foot for you know, with two beds and a stove and assumedly some kind of toilet facilities. I don't know. Maybe that, maybe, maybe they went outside for that. But, and this little girl would grew up in that little stone space and growing up on a golf course, she would watch all these golfers. And when she was a little girl, she would try to copy them. It wasn't like she had clubs, but her dad cut, uh, and this was a true, this was a documentary. This, her, her dad cut her uh, a sort of a, golf club type thing out of out of a tree branch and so she would go around and hit golf balls with it well the long story short by the age of sort of 10 
you, you know, the golfers coming by would see her playing with her stick and somebody gave her an old set of random clubs and she began playing tournaments on, on her home course. And she actually wound up winning a lot of the tournaments and somebody came along and saw her and went, Oh my God, you, you should try to become a professional. And it turns out that there was a, what they call Q school, a qualifying match happening at the Royal Nepal later that year. And so they raised money for her and they, they sent her to America and they got her sponsorship. So she had proper clubs and, you know, it's this beautiful story right up until she goes to the play the qualifying round and it's her and 50 guys because there's no other female golfers in, in Nepal trying to qualify and she has to get top five. And her game is off because all that practice and training was great for an American golf course, but the Nepalese golf course plays completely differently. It has very slow greens. So everything she'd been <sighs> practicing actually put her off her game to the point where she came in ninth, so which was too high for qualifying. Now, the story is not over. She was out. Apparently, they showed shots three hours after it was over to swing in her clubs again. And she, there'll be another Q school this year, and hopefully she'll qualify for the professional tour. I mean, she's only 17. But, but that was just an example of how, you know, this, okay, if you want to do this, you got to do it right. You got to train right and you got to do it right. Chances are good that had she just, because she, that was her home course, you know, she, she normally played seven, eight shots better per round than she played with all that proper training that they did at the last minute to get her ready. So it is one of those things where if you overthink it, you can go, well, how do I know? Should I do this? Should I not do this? You can drive yourself crazy trying to get the magic formula right. But we all kind of know when we're pushing. We all kind of know when we're trying too hard. And if you know that that pushing feeling, that trying too hard feeling is because you're trying too hard and pushing, then then you also, that kind of lets you know, okay, I need to back off this in whatever way it occurs to me to back off this and let life catch up, let grace catch up, let the unfolding catch up. And similarly, if nothing's happening and you're, you're just sitting there and, well, maybe you need to do something. I mean, it's, it's not a one way street, but it's usually pretty easy to get a feel for it once you know there's something to get a feel for. The word that comes to mind is just to notice, I guess. It's a good word. It's a real, I'm a big fan. I actually prefer noticing to mindfulness because mindfulness, there's a lot of pushing in mindfulness. There's a lot of doing in mindfulness. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of activity. You know, whereas noticing is just what happens when we let it. And we become conscious of something that we're doing that we're not doing. And it becomes kind of obvious. I'm, I'm a big fan of the elusive obvious, of, <laughs> of, 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 of these things that once we see them, it's so obvious we can't believe we ever didn't see them, like the emperor's new clothes. But until we see them, we can be completely blind to them for years. Well, it's difficult to see your blind spots, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's kind of impossible, but to do it on purpose. But if you know you have them, then you start to notice them. You start to, you know, now this is where coaches, you know, can be really helpful and friends who are, who can kind of point, point us to our blind spots. But, but even without a formal coach, we can start to get a feel for if there's, if there's an area in our life that just we're, we're, we're just putting in five pounds of effort for at one ounce of reward. 
you know, we, you begin to sense, okay, there's probably something I'm not seeing here. And the funny thing is you can just kind of ask yourself, Hey, ask that in the moment responsive intelligence inside you. Hey, show me what I need to see. And it is amazing how quickly you start to see things you hadn't seen before. Thank you for that. That's really, really useful and really practical, especially as we've been talking about something that we can't even see. (laughs) (laughs) All you ought to do is go up to the blind guy and ask for directions. It'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah. So, Michael, I guess I feel like, yeah, the time is up. Um, If someone wants to get in contact with you, wants to know more about creating the impossible program, or read your books or whatever else, how can they do that? Well, we, we created michaelneal.org as, as our sort of playground on the web. So all, all of my books and podcasts and radio shows and courses and musings and blogs are, are, all, are all at michaelneal.org. So that's the, that's the one-stop shop. The universe. (laughs) (laughs) Michael's universe. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It was such a pleasure and an honor to have you on. And I think I'm going to have to have you on again at some point because I just always enjoy our conversations and always get so much out of it. And I'm sure everybody that's been listening today would would think the same so thank you again and for everybody that has been listening today i hope you enjoyed as much as i did and until the next week bye-bye for now and there you have it another wonderful episode of the joy of being if you loved what you heard here today and it's been helpful why not subscribe or share the podcast with others And if you're curious as to how you can experience more joy in your life and feel carefree, then I invite you to download your Joy Catalyst Scorecard at www.marinapearson.com slash scorecard, which will help you identify the joy gaps and what you can do to fill them. And remember, you can find me on Instagram at Marina Pearson or my Facebook group, The Joy of Being. So until next week's episode, remember... You are the joy you seek.